This is Antonio Garcia with Generation Justice, and I'm speaking with Jennifer Nanez, an enrolled tribal member of the Pueblo of Acoma. She's a training and technical assistance coordinator with the Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Administration, SAMHSA, and Tribal Training and Technical Assistance Center. Ms. Nanez has been in the social work and education fields for over 20 years. And Connie O'Mara, a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Tribe, who has worked to promote individual and community wellness for over 33 years. She currently works as a grantee technical assistant for Native Connections, a national youth-focused preventative initiative funded by the Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Administration, SAMHSA. So Jennifer and Connie, welcome to Generation Justice. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So please share with us a little bit more about yourselves. Connie, would you like to start? I'll start with an introduction. Uh, Bojo, hello. Connie O'Mara, Indigenous, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and Donjaba, Nishnabe, Potawatomi, Citizen Potawatomi, and Dow. My name is Connie O'Mara. I'm a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, originally from Shawnee, Oklahoma. I've made Albuquerque my home, and I'm really, really glad to be here today. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Jennifer? Hi, I'm Gwazi. Gaitao Haupa. Dushinome Ats Aya Yakukuchinishanu. Hello, everybody. My name is Jennifer Ananias, and I'm from the Pueblo of Akuma. And I'm glad to be here with you all today. Thank you so much again. Can you share a bit more about your journey into the profession that you're currently in? I'll start. Um, I've been a social worker for 30 years. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, but of late, I've been doing training and technical assistance for the last 12 years, all in Native communities. I do a little bit of clinical work on the side. My title is Training and Technical Assistance Coordinator, and we do a lot of outreach. We work with all of the 573 plus tribes across the nation. And so I've been very privileged to do this work, learning more about cultures within culture, even if we share some things in common. You know, we all have different languages. We all have different approaches. So I just feel really gifted to have this, you know, work to do every day. So thank you, Miigwech. Thank you, Connie. Jennifer, did you have some feedback on that question? Sure. So I kind of fell into social work early in my college years at New Mexico State and found social work after looking at different majors over time, education, even even engineering, <laughs> and found that when I took my first social work class, it really spoke to me. And it made me also think about things that were happening within my own community and, and around me that really needed attention. And I think over the course of time, it really just became the profession that I've come to love. So I've been in social work for about 25 some odd years now. I'm a master's level social worker. I'm not independently licensed just yet, but the work I've done in the field and really have enjoyed has just always been working within our tribal communities. So I'm fortunate enough to be a colleague of Connie's. I work also with, as a TTA coordinator, training and tribal training and technical assistance coordinator. And really enjoy being able to work not only locally with the tribes in my prior roles and even in this current role here, but now nationally with other tribes working in areas to promote mental health, promote, again, wellness within their communities 
And that's something I've always been interested in, in being a part of. That sounds like some really awesome work that both of you are doing. And both of you have specialized in, in working with Indigenous peoples or youth. And, and why is this important to you each? Maybe, Jennifer, we can start with you. Sure. Well, part of it is because I'm an Indigenous woman. You know, I grew up in the Pueblo of Acoma. I am biracial. I grew up there on reservation with my father and my mother and my family. And we came from an, an, a large extended, you know, traditional family. We all grew up together, oftentimes, sometimes even within all the same household. And I think understanding some of the needs within our community, within our tribe, and understand how those have been very different from the greater population out there was something that I always wanted to focus on. And part of the reason why I've always worked within tribal communities was what my grandfather used to always tell us is that we're here to serve. We're here to be of service to each other, to take care of each other. And that's always a concept that's within our tribal communities of how we care for each other. And I think that really hit home for me in this particular field is that it really is a part of what we do as social workers as we take care of each other in this field. We take care of our communities within this field. And that for me was giving back to my people, giving back to my community, making sure that I gave back and I made sure I was taking care of people like my grandparents asked me to do. And so I really felt that that service calling is part of that work within our tribal communities is to be of service to our people. Thank you so much for that. And Connie, why would you say that this specialized work is really important? I really agree with Jennifer. You know, being a mom, you just have that instinct. But also, I really believe that my own childhood played a role because it wasn't easy and there were challenges. And I did experience trauma. I grew up with alcohol in my home. And there were some heartbreaking moments that I'm healing from today. And so I'm proof that you can heal from that. And I know many of our youth struggle with that. And so when you have been there, sometimes you can connect with someone in need of help easier. And when you're a good listener and you know what it took for you to find the path of wellness, then you can do that. You can, you know, repeat that and support other people. So that's one of the main reasons. But there's another really important reason why I do the work with youth. I'll be honest with you, I learned so much from them. I learned more from them than I could ever teach them. They come with this energy and information and even intelligence that, you know, far surpasses mine. So I hope it's an exchange um, that that benefits both of us. And um, they also give me so much energy myself. On those days, you know, I'm, I'm an elder now. And on those days where I'm feeling like an elder, I just have a one interaction with the youth and it makes all the difference in the world. They give me hope. And while we're talking about that exchange, what's the importance of Indigenous youth connecting with elders and, and others in the communities that they come from? I definitely think it's important that our youth and our elders connect for two reasons. One, like Connie is saying, you know, it really does give some needed and added energy to our elders within their day-to-day, you know, timeframes here with us. But two, because the elders have so much wisdom to share with our young people about the history, about our traditions, about our language, our religions, our practices, and understanding what those really mean. 
But what's so neat about the youth, again, is that innovation that they have, that energy that they have to keep those going and keep those alive and really ways to help share them with each other, I think is really amazing. But I also think that because our communities have gotten away from who we were as people where we had these multi-generational families and systems constantly in place. You know, I grew up with my grandparents. I grew up with my great-grandparents all the way through till my college years. And we've gotten away from that over the course of time. So reintroducing that with, again, this elder and, and youth collaboration, no matter how it's done, really brings us back as to who we are as Indigenous people. Thank you, Jennifer, so much for that beautiful response. And and Connie, would you like to also give your response? Well, as I was saying, you know, in our precious youth, they have challenges too. It's not easy both living in a tribal community sometimes or living in an urban community sometimes. And so there's things that they're dealing with that our elders dealt with too. And that's the, you know, effects of historical trauma and current trauma. And so you need to feel that connection to somebody who really cares and someone who has knowledge that you're willing to listen to. And so I think it's really important for us to make ourselves available, but also for it to be very comfortable for them to be around us. And so we, I think we really need to realize their needs and realize our needs because in order to help them, we have to listen to them. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to learn from them what will really work. When we keep trying to do things, and I don't mean this in a disrespectful way. Oh, I really want every one of our youth to learn their own culture. I want my, I'm teaching my granddaughter culture. She's three years old and I'm working on ways to, for her to learn starting from a young age. But we have to do it in a way that's respectful for those youth that figures as like, as Jennifer says, that they, you know, they find a way to connect with us in a good way so that they feel comfortable. And Connie, could you talk more about some of the stigma and false narratives around mental health that may be more specific to indigenous populations? Well, I definitely agree with Jennifer that the way our communities, the way I learned is not to separate mental health from an overall wellness that we can all enjoy and that we always work towards and that we actually had ways built in to our societies and tribes already to reach wellness at any given point in our lives. So I I think that that's so important to understand that when we're developing systems and interventions and, you know, strategies for increasing mental health in our communities, that we really understand the way that particular tribe looks at wellness so that we can meet that need. And I know that's going to be difficult because there's two systems going on. But I really feel, and I know Jennifer agrees, I really feel that we can blend those systems and make it work for our tribal communities so that more and more people are able to be supported and not have that stigma around it. It's just part of being human, that you have challenges, you know, that you have difficulties in your life that you have to overcome and that that doesn't make you, you know, wrong. It's not what's wrong, it's what happened. And how we look at that makes a big difference. And Jennifer, what would you say some of the stigmas and false narratives around mental health are more specific to Indigenous populations? It's gotten separated over time, looking at mental health as part of overall health care and health for ourselves. 
that idea that we're whole beings. And Western medicine really played a large role in that, in separating out what was mental health related issues and saying, oh, that gets treated over there by someone else in another room, in another building. And we don't even talk about it because it's such a taboo topic. And that's wrong. You know, it really has been a disservice to our people in part because we never treated ourselves in that manner. When we worked with holistic medicine as indigenous people, we never left that feeling out. You know, how are you feeling? You know, what emotions are you having? Where is that coming from? What happened that brought that feeling upon you? is something that we always paid attention to. When it became taboo to talk about it, it became a secret issue, something that we bury, something that we don't address. And we really do need to bring it back in because we have that chance and that need to talk about those things that affect us, to talk about what impacts us, to talk about those traumas and how they've hurt us over time so we can heal from that. And that's, I think, been the biggest issue with stigma with regards to mental health is that it's been separated out from overall health care and the overall idea of health. And so getting back to that really is not just saying, okay, we're getting back to an idealized form of health overall. It's an indigenous form of health, of looking at us as, as a whole being. Definitely. Thank you for that. And, and while we're on the topic, what are some of the assets that indigenous communities have that support wellness and mental health? I do think that for our communities, the fact that we have, especially here in the Southwest, so many of our tribes and tribal nations really nationally that are rooted very deeply within their tradition and their culture and their language is incredibly important and incredibly supportive to these efforts because that's protection. Our culture is protective, our culture is prevention. And I think trying to make sure that we impress that upon our work that we do for those who are non-Indian working in tribal communities, such as the federal government, such as federal grants that come into play, federal funding systems that come into play, that understand that really it's who we are that's most supportive, not what evidence-based practice model you want us to utilize is most important. No, it's who we are and what we have to bring to the table that matters and makes us resilient and helps us with our resilience over time really is incredibly important. And for those of us who are still learning our traditions and learning our language, and I'll say for one that I'm one, you know, that it's also that connection that we have to understanding who we are that is, again, very supportive of our efforts within our own mental health. And having that connection and having that deeper understanding of this long history that we have, this long tradition that we have, this long culture and religion that we have really helps us and, and supports us over the course of time. So I think that's what's really unique about indigenous populations overall is that's something we have that's been in place for a millennia. And, you know, it's only now that Western medicine is beginning to recognize it, something that we've known all along. And then I'd love to go to Connie again. What are the assets that indigenous communities have that really support wellness and mental health? 
one of the things that I've always been impressed by now that I'm here in the Southwest is there's a ceremony for every stage of development that is meant to maintain wellness. And those ceremonies are stronger here than they are in some of our other communities, but our other communities are, you know, learning a lot and coming back to those. So those, those are the assets, those medicine people that live on and pass that tradition on to other people that are generous with their love and spirit to help people even to this day. That's definitely an asset. And Jennifer was talking about that. The other thing is that many people in our communities are starting when their children are very young to teach those. There was a little interruption with historical trauma and and other trauma that happened, but there's a rebirth in, you know, the importance and there's a lot of prevention dollars that go towards helping families and parents, you know, bring this forward, something that they may have lost, but then can regain to take that forward to our generations. We need these ways to continue. We need to teach these to our children. We need to maintain that connection wherever we live. And so I think that's really something that is of a huge asset in our communities. And that's also thanks to federal dollars. So we are very grateful. Thank you so much for that, Connie. And I'd like to go to Jennifer and then Connie with this next one. What are some of the disparities and inequities that you might see in Indigenous youth versus other populations? I think the inequities that we see aren't, again, specific to, say, our youth, because our youth do not have deficits. Our youth have strengths. Our youth have resources. Our youth have resilience. But when we talk about the deficits that are out there, they have been imposed in part because policy and systems that are in place that don't always keep in mind our indigenous populations and our needs. And right now during this pandemic, it's a really good example of that. We talk about internet access, just you know, basic internet access for our communities is huge. And we're seeing right now with the pandemic that it's hindering education, it's hindering healthcare access, It's hindering the ability to communicate with each other, in part because our families are separated during this time frame. You know, those multi-generational family systems that we have and have always been a part of and always gathered together, we can't do because of the pandemic. But those things like, again, internet access have an impact on it. And when we talk about those kinds of deficits or social determinants of health that we don't always have access to, it's not in part because we didn't create them ourselves. If we had the ability to do that on every level, we wouldn't have these issues, but we get caught up in policy, both state policy, federal policy, that creates those issues or doesn't support those issues like healthcare funding, like education funding, like the basic needs that we consider like, you know, electricity, water. And now we talk about telecommunications like internet and telephone lines now that are really necessary. And when we think about it in the healthcare and the mental healthcare realm, especially, we have to think about that because those systems are what impacts our access to health, our access to mental health care. Again, take, for instance, the Indian Health Service System for all of what we call the Albuquerque area. And that's all of the 27 tribes within that catchment from southern Colorado all the way down to West Texas and Isleta del Sur Pueblo. 
and it encompasses all of the tribes and the Apache nations and then the three independent Navajo bands, there's 12 behavioral health care providers. That's it in the IHS system for all of those tribes and all of those tribal members. And so when we talk about, again, those deficits, it's not something that we want. We need providers. We want providers. And we want to grow our own providers from our population to promote our own people up into those positions because we know what we need as treatment providers. We know what we need as prevention providers within our community, as peer support workers within our community. But we get caught up in these funding systems. So those are things that I think we really have to understand. It's not only the trauma history, you know, that we have that has impacted our communities, the federal policy over the course of time that has impacted where we are today. But how do we advocate for ourselves as well is really incredibly important now because we have that political power. We have that political will to bring these things to forbearance and show what we need because now we understand it. And that makes us, again, incredibly powerful as well, too, because we have that ability now to speak to that, to advocate for that, to be activistic about that, about what supports our health and mental health. And I hope that we see changes in the coming years. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that, Jennifer. And Connie, what are some of the disparities and inequities that you might see among Indigenous youth populations versus others? Well, I think, you know, Jennifer covered those really well. Just basic needs in many of our communities. We have a problem with clean, healthy water in our communities. We have uh, food insecurity in many of our communities. We have lack of educa- lack of access to education. You know, one of the things that is probably the most harmful are racist kinds of things that our young people are subjected to. And things like even, you know, team names that, you know, use our indigenous names in not a good way. And so as far as them trying to develop an identity around, you know, who they are and, and that they're very, they come from strong people, it's very challenging. But just basic poverty issues, you know, and our youth, many of them are in rural areas. They, you know, don't have a lot available to them. And sometimes it can really seem hopeless There's less resources, less opportunities. That said, despite all that, in the poorest community of our nation, South Dakota, our youth were, you know, the main organizers around the Water is Life movement to stop the pipeline. So it obviously, if we focus on their resilience and their strengths and help them tell their stories and help them get the word out and help them organize, I bet you many of those youth are much better than they were before just because they felt like they had some power and they could make a difference and they did make a difference. They taught us elders how to do it. So I feel very hopeful for that. And starting again with you, Connie, what are some things that you do every day to maintain your own sense of wellness? That's a really good question. Today's a really good day to ask me because I've been multitasking. I took, you know, typically, I guess a social worker thing, we end up taking on more because we want to help more. And so I was just talking about that on our webinar is that I do have a practice 
that I do every day. Usually it's in the morning, but it occurs every day. It's just to get centered. It's to do my prayers, to smudge in the morning, to make sure those prayers go up to creator. And then, you know, noticing when I'm struggling. And I've pulled in Jennifer before as my colleague when I was struggling, sometimes just sharing it, getting outside of yourself and sharing it and getting that support is enough get you through the whole week. So I think it's just something that we have to build in as a practice in our everyday lives. And we have to notice because if we don't notice, sometimes it's too late and we don't take good care of ourselves. So I'm learning that still, still learning. Yeah, that's really important. Jennifer, what do you do every day to maintain your own sense of wellness? That's definitely something I'm working on too, between work and being a mom and Right now, having a daughter at home who is working on a virtual school, it can get a little hectic at times and trying to make sure everything is still running and smoothly within the household and still trying to take care of work-related things. It can get hard. But for me, I think one of the things I like to do is, is definitely pray. Before I go to sleep at night, I make sure I'm, I'm praying because it really helps me recenter myself for the day helps me kind of calm down from the day helps me reset for the following day and then throughout the day I try and take little breaks maybe it's you know to listen to music or to do something you know with my daughter we go for a walk or we get out and play for a little bit that helps both of us and really helps me and I find I do have to work at it because I can be a bit of a workaholic and I've been told that very many times <laughs> Lots of people, (laughs) including family members, that it is hard to step away. But we have to practice what we preach. You know, we tell folks to take care of themselves. We encourage folks and we support folks in that. But we also have to learn how to model it for them, but also for ourselves as well, too. And this pandemic, I think, has actually really taught me that because one, working from home has been a new experience for me and learning how to balance that and learning how to practice it and model that for my daughter during the day, during a work day, during a busy day. How do we take some breathers? And it could be a dance break. It could be a music break. It could be something along those lines. But it it helps to help us recenter. But again, I think the biggest part and at the end of the day is has always been that prayer for me to sit and just pray and to think and to kind of meditate on the day and on the needs of everybody that I have within my family. And even if we can't provide support to everybody, that at least prayer and lifting them up in prayer really is, again, a way of protection as best we can when we can't be there. Thank you again for that, Jennifer. And Connie, where can people find resources and more information about your work? We have a couple of websites. One of them is the SAMHSA Tribal Training and Technical Assistance Center website. Any tribal or urban community across the United States can make a training and technical assistance request. Until we run out of funds, we usually respond to all of those requests that are related to substance misuse, suicide prevention, mental health and wellness, those kinds of things. So that's one way. We also have do you know training technical assistance for Native Connections, which is a huge grant program for our Native people across the country to really focus on suicide and substance misuse prevention. But we we tweak it so it's wellness. It's just looking at that big picture that Jennifer described. So those are a couple of ways. Tribal Tech also takes 
new contracts and requests when needed. We've done some free programming for the American Indian Life Skills Project um, with our professor from Stanford. So, you know, there's lots of different ways. So we're real open to having contacted to support our Native people out there. Jennifer, where can people find resources and more info about your work? Well, being that I work with Connie, the Connie hit the majority of the sites that are out there. But a few other resources to consider, especially for Indigenous youth, are sites like We Are Native. And that's a wonderful site that has a lot of good information, both on overall health and mental health care for Indigenous youth within the United States. So it's a really great resource. Centers for Native American Youth as well, too, is another great resource that touches on overall health as well as mental health needs for our youth. And these are, again, agencies that we work closely with over time and promote within our work, both with our agency and in other roles that we've had over the course of time. These are some wonderful resources that are, are out there for our youth and for our communities to utilize. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Is there anything else that you, Connie or Jennifer, would like to add? I just want to say that Jennifer, Teresa, and myself practice what we preach. So we've been working in collaboration among our different organizations until we stole Jennifer away. And we wanted to show that when you work in collaboration, you can serve more people. You can cross lines when one organization can't do one thing. You can share resources. And so that's been a long friendship and a long collaboration. And I'm really proud that it just comes natural to us to do that. But we could offer that as, you know, an example of what all people can do. So that's the only thing I wanted to add. And I think with the Honoring Native Life Project, it's really, you know, helped for some of those things. But it's helped us a lot, too, in getting great information out about what you can't do with a project like Honoring Native Life across nationally. So they realize, hey, this is powerful. So that's all I wanted to add. Thank you. And, and Jennifer? Yeah, and I definitely agree with Connie that that collaboration has really been key, in part because we have these issues where we don't always have the resources enough in one program or project to do everything we want to do. So we do end up sharing, you know, between each other. And if at all possible, that's one of the best ways to work is across lines and with collaboration like we've been able to do a generation justice. It's just amazing what we could accomplish all together. But I think one of the biggest things too that I, I want to share is this, again, this idea of service that, you know, with the fields that we work in and that understanding of who we are in, as Indigenous people, you know, I see a lot of our youth really understanding that concept of service to each other. And that's amazing because there's so much that we can change both for our communities, but really nationally, if we begin to get back to that idea of how do we serve each other? How do we take care of each other? And how do we care for ourselves in that so we can care for others? And I think that's one of the biggest pieces that I like to convey is that as we work in collaboration, it really does help us with that idea of how do we serve with each other? And how do we serve our communities? And what do we give back to our communities? Because in working with our communities, we gain a lot. We really do. We gain that energy. We gain that knowledge. We gain that blessing that they give upon us with all that work that comes from it. But in turn, we have to be able to give back. And how do we give back is how we serve. And so when we think about that concept, again, you see that. And really, that's 
you know, what we're here for, what we've been placed on this earth to do is to provide that to each other. And so if I could pass along any message, when we think about overall youth and our youth mental health and youth within our communities and for our populations as a whole, is that if we get back into that mode of both service and self-care, we really have that, again, chance to take care of each other well and really build our communities up and build that support structure up and build that health and wellness and balance for ourselves all together. Well, Hedna, thank you so much, Jennifer and Connie, for sharing your time with us and the work that you do within our communities. Thank you for the opportunity, AJ. I really appreciate it. It was a beautiful, beautiful time together. So thanks. And Dawa, thank you very much, AJ. This was fun. I really enjoyed the talk. <laughs> for Generation Justice, I'm Antonio Garcia. <laughs>